This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Welcome everyone. I want to give a, a tremendous chazak, baruch to the chazak organization for doing such an outstanding job to spread the light of Torah throughout the world. It's an honor and a pleasure to work with them. I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to Rabbi of Chazak, who is a wonderful individual who really works tirelessly on behalf of this incredible organization. Tiyaniv and his brother, they're doing such a great job. You should continue to be able to help Klaus Yisrael in every way. Please, please, if you have stuck money out there in the Truma account, the best place you can give it to is Chazak. They can use every penny. The work that they're doing is unparalleled in terms of saving the Shamas, getting kids out of public school. So everything, every, anything you can do in terms of financial support is really appreciated by this incredible organization. And I consider myself honored to be able to, to speak on their behalf. And I'll go for, you know, the mile for them anywhere they need me. So thank you to Chazak for all the work that they do. Anyone out there? who uh, would like help, and anyone in the audience who needs my help can certainly see me. Um, all you have to do is Google my name, and you'll find me under Dating Coach Dr. Jack Cohen. So feel free to call me from anywhere in the world. Okay, here we go. Uh, I, w- I first wanted to start tonight's talk. is called The Five-Point Plan of Having a Winning Marriage, and the Ultimate Formula. I want to first start with the Dvar Torah that was told this week by my dear Rebbe, Rabbi Vigda Miller, who I was zochet to know since I was in seventh grade, who I went with my kala to his house. She was petrified, and she, I told her, the law, law is very simple. If Rabbi Vigda Miller says, you can be my wife, you're in. And it was a month of Shabbos, it was about 31 years ago, and Baruch Hashem, we've been blessed with happiness ever since. So anyway, he says about this week's parsha, the Batya, or Bitya, some people call her, the daughter of Paro, went down to the river to bathe. But, Chazal tell us, what was she doing down there? So the Gemara points out, That day, Batya made a decision, I'm done with Avodah Zarah. I'm not having any part anymore of this Avodah Zarah. I'm going to wash my hands of my father, Paro, and all the Avodah Zarah that he represents. At that point, Chazal say, it's amazing. You know what we learn here? In the way that a person wishes to go, is the way he is led. She desired to do tshuva, Hashem says, you want to do tshuva? You want. The key is desire. You show the desire to change? Well, guess what? You're going to be responsible for all of Kal Yisrael. Because you will raise the manhig. You will raise the person in Moshe Rabbeinu, who is going to end up being the leader of the Klal, of Klal Yisrael and to take Am Yisrael out of servitude. This is not simple, considering that she also got the, the privilege to name him. All because she had the raton. She had the desire to be able to affect the change in her life and say, you know what, I can step away from all what that Irat Misraim represented, which was a land that was infested with Avodah Zarah. They were steeped in it. And what Rabbi Vigdemila tells us here is something that's fascinating. You've got to go out of your way to get the education that you need in order to become the Jew that you can become. If you need to become a better husband and a wife, that's why we're here tonight, to provide that education. Guess what? If you don't go get an education, your mind will not, will not remain empty. It's not going to remain empty. Because the world will get busy filling your mind up with stuff. If you don't make an active effort to fill your mind with Torah, with proper principles of how to live 
effectively. The world's not going to stand by and let you just hang out. They're going to find a way to get into your head and fill your mind with stuff. So it's either you go and make the effort to learn how to be a good Jew, how to be a good husband, how to be a good Eved Hashem, or the world will do it for you. And unfortunately, the stuff that they'll stick in there won't be things that you'll be proud of. So what going to, we're saying here is that, let's review, in the way that you want to go is the way God leads you. If you want to be good, guess what? They're going to put all types of good people in your life. You want to study Torah? So you're going to go to the base Medrash and they're going to offer you the best Chavrusa. You're going to show up, you're going to desire to learn Torah, you're going to end up making friends with rabbis who are great scholars and great teachers because you show desire. And correspondingly, the same happens on the other side of the totem pole. You want to do evil? You want to do bad? So they're going to end up hooking you up with people that are gamblers, bad people, all types of street thugs. It is what you desire. Your desire creates your reality. Okay, so now, according to what we're saying here, it's important for every husband to start on the right path when he gets married. And if you're married 50 years already, you can still start. How many people are in a rut in their marriages? I'll speak about that a little bit today. So every husband, every chassan, every chatan at the beginning should make up his mind. I want to live a life of complete harmony with my kala. I hope never to hurt her feelings. I hope always to honor her and to make her happy. That's called desire. And she should say to herself, all my life, I'm going to try to make my husband happy and never say anything mean to him. I'm never going to bother him for nothing and I'm never going to ask for too many things for myself or for the house. Straight quote from Rigdor Miller, my Rebbe. I'll try to limit myself to whatever it makes life easier for my husband. So they both make up their minds. They wrote, they wrote say, they desire to do what's good. And not just superficially, they take upon themselves with a life shalom, with a full heart, that they want to fulfill these ideals, even later on in life when it's not so easy. And when you desire to do what's good, then Hashem says, if that's the case, Molochin Oto, I'll carry you there. I'll get you to the goal that you want, because you show the desire to get there. So with that, I'll, I'll open my introduction. Marriage can either be the source of life's greatest joys and nachas. Nachas is one of the famous words in the Jewish vocabulary, pleasure. Or marriage can be the root of much misery, even tragedy. There's a formula that can be stated in five words that is the key to a great life, a great marriage. I didn't make it up, but a great representative of Klai Israel, a great person in our history made that up. And that was David HaMelech when he said, what does that mean in English? Don't cause pain, give pleasure. Or keep away from evil and do good. You want to be a great husband? Don't cause pain, give pleasure. That's the ultimate five-word formula. Keep away from evil and do good. Both with words and deeds, be careful not to cause your spouse needless pain. We, as far as the fact that we're Jews, we know that the mouth can kill far more effectively than the sword. As Chazal tells us, a sword can only kill four feet away, two feet away. I can be in a my room in or my living room in New York, and I can destroy someone's reputation 2,000 miles away, whether that be in L.A. or Florida or around the world. It takes very little to be able to destroy someone today. Okay, only a rare person is sadistic and really enjoys causing pain, but in marriage, it's easy to feel frustrated or angry when your wishes and needs clash. And these clashes can breed arguments and quarrels which hurt feelings on both sides. Marriage gives you constant opportunities to develop the attribute of doing chesed and the self-mastery and the sensitivity, not to cause pain. What is marriage but a laboratory in perfecting yourself? If you're single, well, there's no test. I was talking to a group of older singles this past week in Manhattan. You're not tested because 
You don't have to share anything. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to get up in the middle of the night to determine who's going to take care of the baby who's crying. So there's no, and there's no kind of work on yourself at all. It's all about me. And all, as a result, what happens? You as an individual remain the way you are. Greedy, thinking only of yourself, not sharing, lacking in patience. These are the people who can't tolerate any kind of inconvenience in life. But marriage teaches you how to deal with life. How to deal with that stuff. How would you learn how to change yourself so that you can become a better person in marriage? Here's a key exercise. Sit quietly for 30 seconds without saying one word. Why is that so important? Because 90% of the problems in marriage is when you snap at each other the minute a comment is made. Because you can't... You don't have the discipline to hold back and keep your mouth closed. Okay, if you were to do this exercise and sit for 30 seconds and not talk and repeat this exercise, so anytime an inflammatory remark is made to you by a friend or especially by a spouse, you'll have trained yourself. It takes training to become better at what is the gedolim. You know, the Rizal would say, do you think that the Chavetz Chaim just was, came out of his mother's womb perfect in character? Do you know how many times he had slumps in Lashon Hara before he became the Chavetz Chaim? But he worked on himself. It's about training yourself. You don't just become a Godel overnight. It's that Sheva Pamim Nafal, Tzadik Vikam. Seven times he fell and the Tzadik got up. So he says, the fools read it like this. Seven times the Tzadik fell and he got up. No, if you follow the grammar, it says seven times he fell. And then, Tzadik Vikam, a regular guy, we're talking about, another one, like us, nothing special. Regular people who fall but get up again, they become a Tzadik as a result of getting up. They didn't start out that way. Most people have it wrong. They think they came out of the room righteous, and that's why they're so good at what they are, so holy, so, you know, incomparable. No, it's not the way it is. It's becoming, it's being a regular guy and just constantly getting up. That's how you become a Godel in life. Because most of the pain is caused by saying the wrong things, having a negative look on your face, doing things that are annoying and irritating. If you were quiet for those 30 seconds, you will not avoid all the problems that usually cause marriages to fall apart. You just need the willpower when it's difficult. It's not easy, but we're not put in this world to have it easy. We're put in this world to deal with tests. The first line of the classic Musar book, Misil Sisharim, says, This world was created in order for us to pass challenges. And by passing those challenges, you'll even, you'll, you'll rise in, in the hierarchy with Hashem, and you'll get a higher and higher level in Olam Haba. Regarding the subject of giving your husband or wife pleasure, we ask the question, what have you done that has given your wife or husband pleasure recently? For that matter, what have you said or done to, for anyone on the planet that was helpful, useful, kind, or pleasurable to them? Tonight we want to be able to condition the mentality that my job in this world, regardless of who I deal with, is to look to give people pleasure and not give people pain. And if I can internalize that message now, then certainly when I go into marriage, if I'm single or I'm married now, I can start focusing on what good could I do for people. Now, the, the author of the classic work, Ochel Sadiqim, writes that when it comes to perfecting your character, there's two problems. One is not knowing what to do, and the second is knowing what to do, but not having the motivation to follow through. So we need to be able to work on our motivation. Look, here's what happens today. People pay a lot of money to paint their homes, believing that the right color will lift their emotional state. People pay a lot of money to have nice furniture in their homes, convinced that elegant furniture creates a beautiful atmosphere. But guess what? Having a harmonious marriage is more valuable than the most beautiful paint job and the most expensive furniture. 
Harmony in your home makes it beautiful regardless of the shade of paint and the quality of the furniture. It's advisable to make a long list of the things that your wife likes or husband likes and focus on that and avoid the things that are causing discomfort. Most of the pain that husbands and wives cause each other is not because it's mean or vicious. Rather, they want something from their spouse and feel frustrated or upset by not getting it. They want something and they're not getting it. As a result, as a result, they snap at each other. Husbands and wives need to accept the fact that no one in this world gets everything they wish for. So stop thinking that the world owes you anything. Because you're not here to get everything you desire and wish for. At the same time, both you and your spouse benefit by you are becoming proficient at asking in such a way that a result in the, your spouse giving you what you want. Ladies and gentlemen, it comes down to technique. I train people worldwide. People call me from throughout the world how to talk, how to communicate with their dating partners, with their husbands and their wives. I do this effectively. Again, if you need me, just Google me on the Dr. Jack Cohen Dating. You'll find me. And then you can call me and I'll help you. Therefore, be willing to ask your wife or husband in such a way that your spouse will find it pleasant. Some husbands and wives resent the idea of having to ask what they want. They say, why should I have to ask her? Why should I have to ask him? She should know instinctively. He should know instinctively what I want. No. Where is this principle in the world? Where is the source of this principle that we have to know what people are thinking? We don't have telepathy. If you want something, learn how to ask for it. And when you ask for it, ask for it in a gentle way. It's ways are ways of pleasantness. We are, we are the people that are considered to be fine. So we have to act with dignity and nobility. Avoid giving orders when you ask a spouse to do something for you. It's much more preferable to say something like, Could you please? I'm sorry to trouble you. Can I please ask you? Would you mind if... Please say no if it's too difficult for you. Would you be able to? I have a problem. Perhaps you could help me. Notice, it's done with Ehrlichkeit. It's done with a degree of sensitivity. It's done with a degree of refinement. When you need attention, ask for it from your spouse. Don't just be upset that you're not getting it. Most people don't associate negotiations with marriage, but rather with two countries dealing with each other about important issues. Actually, negotiation is a tool we use in many areas of our lives. For example... We're willing to work many hours doing things that don't, that may not interest us in exchange for the money that we earn because we negotiate the salary. And if we stay late and we work overtime, we negotiate the overtime. So why can't you use that same concept with regards to your spouse? It's critical that you, be, you should be able to have good negotiation skills. Couples that don't know how to negotiate well are likely to fight and argue that will cause both pain. It's, if either the husband or wife have a stronger personality and gets his or her way without taking the other ones into consideration, resentment builds up, causing depression or anger, as well as strife and suffering, and most often leads right into the fracture of the marriage, which leads to divorce. When you want your spouse to do something for you that your spouse is not, is not interested in doing, think, what can I do for him or her so that in return, they'll be willing to do this for me? How can I get them to say yes to me? What can I do for them so that I'll ease the way? If you make a request and your spouse responds with no, you don't necessarily have to take this as a final position. In many instances, a no is sometimes a not yet. If you calmly explain why you need that done or what you need from your spouse, and you tell them why it's important to you, the other person may change his or her mind. Ask yourself, how can I negotiate to get a yes? At the same time, be prepared to accept a no. In the long run, your acceptance of a no can lead to an ultimate yes. 
When you try to motivate or influence your spouse to do something for you personally, or even something that you feel would be for his or her benefit, right, and they won't do it, how will you ask for it will make the world of a difference? There are ways to ask that make people happy, and there are ways to ask that give people pain. And you have to remember, take for example the practice of yelling. Yelling, which is a terrible thing at someone until they take action. As I was telling the crowd here, I'm, I work with a lot of Shalom Bias cases. I have one recently that I've been w- working with where there's a lot of yelling going on in the house. And unfortunately, even the police have been brought in to solve some of these issues. And we realize that yelling will accomplish nothing. When you yell, you're making noise in a way that is highly distressful. The person being yelled at might choose to do what you asked rather than suffer from your yelling. Does it work? No. You may get immediate results, but in the long term, the pain you cause creates negative energy in the whole house. Who's going to tell me that's not accurate? And the yelling will lead to the disintegration of the marriage. So the yelling has to stop. We have to lower the volume. Again, we have to lower the volume. Even if the marriage lasts, it will be missing love and respect. This will be a short-term victory at the cost of a long-term marital crisis. Case number one. Amain writes, Before my wedding, I asked a number of people for three ideas that they felt were most helpful that I should have a great life and a great marriage. The one idea that helped me the most was from a man that I asked for his advice who was now happily married after two divorces. Listen to what he learned from his life after two divorces. I'll tell you a question to ask yourself, the man said, that caused me a great deal of suffering. Before I asked this question, I ruined two marriages. Again, he said, I ruined two marriages. I suffered a lot and I caused suffering to others. Now that I consistently ask myself this question. I'm happily married. I'm certain that if I would have asked myself this question, my first marriages would never have ended in divorce. They would have been successful. And here's the question. Before asking your spouse for anything, the question to ask yourself is, how can I make my spouse feel good about complying with my request? Why? Listen to what he used to do. The first two times I was married, I gave orders in a commanding voice, like I was the general of an army. If my request was not met, I spoke in anger. I instilled guilt and fear into the home. At times I got what I asked for. But like the old saying goes, the operation was successful. But the patient died. So what good is it? As a surgeon, do you feel great that you did a great surgery? But the patient died? So you yelled, and you felt good about it. And in the end, the house was destroyed. The kids all had to go to therapy, and then now the marriage is ripped up into pieces, and you're fighting the cats and dogs in, in court. If you want a healthy, vital marriage, the man says, speak and act in ways that will make your spouse happy to do the things you need and want. Case number two. Come in, ladies. You'll enjoy. I hated the way my mother treated my father. She would frequently scold and scream and nag at him. I thought my father was constantly being bothered and pleasured. When I got married, I would never treat my husband that way. So it was a woman who grew up in a house where the father always screamed at his mother, at her mother. And she said, when I get married, I'm never going to act that way. When I got engaged, I was so thrilled with my husband that I was certain I would find it easy to keep my pledge to myself, that I would never behave the way my, my mother behaved, the way she henpecked him. When I made it, Okay, now that I was going to be married to such a wonderful guy, I was absolutely positive that I would never speak to my husband disrespectfully like my mother spoke to my father. 
I was in for a big shock when a few days after my wedding, I heard myself start to nag my beloved Chatan the same way my mother did my father. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I could hardly believe how I used the same words and the same tone of voice that my mother used to. When she bothered my father, she used to scream at him. She made him feel like two cents. It was like a tape recorder in my brain that played itself automatically. I remember hearing that if you want to change a pattern, you need to clarify the exact pattern you do want. If you want to change a behavior, you have to determine what behavior do I want to become. I repeatedly practiced more respected approaches. I even looked in the mirror when I rehearsed the pleasant ways of speaking that I wanted to now do, which means it doesn't happen overnight. You've got to practice and practice and practice and practice. Even when I was trained in surgery, I used to sit for four hours thinking the whole surgery before I even went into the OR. And I did, and I did a lot of bone surgery in my life. It's all practice. Practicing the mind. Practicing how you want to speak. Sometimes I deal with people and I help them, in, especially in dating. And I tell them from throughout the world, do me a favor. I see when I speak to you, you never smile. I want you to close the door of your bedroom, look at the mirror and smile 50 times for me every day. You can condition yourself to do anything with practice. So this woman did that. She practiced the kind of behavior she wanted from herself. I thought this was so important that I was willing to repeat this thousands of times. My practice paid off. Even when I was dissatisfied, I speak in ways now that are acceptable to my husband, and we have a fantastic marriage. Case number... Well, sorry. Forgive me about that. Case number three. My parents were divorced when I was a child. I grew up with my mother and saw my father only rarely. My memories of their marriage was painful. My father had a horrible temper and would yell at my mother all the time. I always have said I didn't have a healthy role model of how a husband should speak to his wife. Cop out. Right? I see this all the time. Thank God I spend 12, 13 hours a day, five and a half days a week, listening to people. And people say, what can I say? I grew up in an abusive home. So that's it? And you, you stop there? My wife didn't like the way I spoke to her. So we went to our rabbi for advice. I told him how I lacked a role model when I grew up. The rabbi disagreed with me saying, you have many positive role models and even some great role models. You just didn't realize it. So the rabbi asked him a question. Will you ever a guest at anybody's house for Shabbos? He asked me. And I said to the rabbi, plenty of times. And the rabbi asked me, did you ever hear husbands speak in positive and polite ways to their wives? Of course, many times, I answered the rabbi. Then you have had many role models. Each of those scenes is engraved in your mental library. Just think of the different married men you observed and how they behaved nicely. And keep thinking of these scenes and put that, that's all in your library. But each time... I told the rabbi that was only for 20 minutes, a half hour. Even if you only hear someone speak for a few moments, the rabbi said, that person is your role model. I never saw it that way before, I told the rabbi, but of course, it makes sense. And the rabbi said, I'll prove it to you. You've been speaking very pleasantly and courteously to me for the last 25 minutes. Use this as a role model for the way to speak to your wife. Realizing that I did have positive role models gave me guidelines that have greatly improved the way I now speak to my wife. 
Which means you can't use the cop out. Well, I grew up in an abusive home. It is what it is. But many of us have great friends. Many of us are invited to wonderful homes. Those are your role models. Who has to say that the only person that could ever have taught you in life was your father? I had a great father. But I must say, I learned a lot from my friends. I learned a lot from my rabbis. I'm constantly learning. I love to look at good role models. I love to be able to integrate other people's good behavior into my behavior. So we're constantly having role models. To say that you, had, you didn't have a good role model in life is an absolute cop-out. Okay. Listen to this. It's a great story. Great story. How to communicate effectively. I was waiting on a long line in the post office in a bad area in New York. A tough guy was smoking a cigarette. Are you allowed to smoke inside the post office? No. Can't smoke in the post office, right? The look on the guy's face said, I'm going to smoke in the post office whether anybody likes it or not. Dare to do anything about it. Someone who didn't like raised his voice and said to the guy, Hey, you can't smoke in here. So the guy says, You're going to try and stop me? Just try to stop me. You'll be sorry if you do. Stop smoking. A tall and husky fellow called out to him. So he answers back, big guy, you think you're the police or something? If you try to take away my cigarette, I'm going to break your hands. That's two people so far who tried to stop him. Listen to the third one. A little, little old man who had witnessed the scene politely said to the smoker, I'm so sorry to inconvenience you, sir, but I greatly appreciate it if you smoke, don't smoke. I don't mean to tell anybody what to do, but my father died of cancer, and my doctor told me to avoid cigarette smoke. To my amazement, the smoker complied with the request. He looked at the little man and said, no problem. The cigarette's almost gone. I'll wait for the next one until I get out, outside. After this, I began to apply the power. I'm sorry to inconvenience you. See how he started? Sweet sugar, right? What they said, we learned in Dafyumi yesterday, a soft answer turns away wrath. And I greatly appreciate it if you would be so kind. So the man who writes this story says, I started using that with my wife. I'm sorry to inconvenience you, but can you do X, Y, Z? I greatly appreciate it if you'd be so kind. That's how you talk. That's how you want to get anything done with your spouse. You speak nicely. You start with a good comment. I have to admit that the side effects of this approach are a lot better than stop smoking or you're bothering me. Okay, next. Insults and put-downs. The Torah prohibits all forms of causing pain with words. It's called onaativarim. It's a very basic biblical violation. We as Jews are not allowed to use our mouths to insult people, to put people down, to call them nicknames. We're very careful with our tongues. To us, the tongue is more lethal than an atom bomb. So there's an odd concept called onaativarim. Insults and put-downs. The Mishnah tells us and, and elaborates on this. That a man must be careful, a woman also, not to cause the spouse pain with words. Since men and women, or rather, right, people are sensitive. And they don't want to be called word pain, right? So, some people who cause pain with their words tell their victim, it's not what I said that caused you pain, it's the way you took it. Just change the way you take it and you'll be free from the pain. That's not their problem, their job. That you think you have to change people for the way, because you can say bad things and expect them to change? That's not their job to interpret things differently. If you're saying things that are hurtful, stop it. The fact that this person might have worked on mastering their ability to not let insults bother them doesn't give you the right to throw rocks at people. 
It's forbidden for a husband or a wife to speak in a way that would be considered mocking, belittling, scoffing, insulting, put down. Sarcasm is pure mockery. As a matter of fact, the Rachot Sadikim says sarcasm, sarcastic people, it's so evil, it's so bad from the eyes of the Torah, a person who's sarcastic. For example, I'll give you a, a, a friend once told a great story. He was like shocked. There was a great speaker. 500 people came to him speak. Packed house. He delivered a fantastic drasha. One guy comes out and he's, everyone's admiring and talking about how great the speech was. And this guy, Mr. Sarcasm. But did you get a look at his tie? It didn't even match his suit. That's all you had to say? Nothing to do with the actual content? That's sarcasm. The person who looks, what we call the, in Hebrew, Ayn Tzar, that myopic eye, looking for the negative. Excuse me. Another one. Let's say you told your spouse to do something and it didn't work out. Right? Or you told them not to do something and they went ahead and didn't listen to you. One of the things you should stop doing is, I told you so, because you have to show off. Stop this I told you so stuff. This is ego satisfaction at the expense of her or his pain. Or rushing the spouse by saying, come on already, what's taking you so long in a loud voice is also very hurtful. Case. Whenever my wife failed to notice anything that I thought she should have seen, I told her, you're blind as a bat. Watch this. This is like a case uh, 101 of of using misusing words. Whenever she didn't understand something, I commented, how come you don't understand? Are you that stupid? Could you imagine someone talking to their spouse like that? These are real stories. This is what's going on, ladies and gentlemen. This is what I see daily. Every night. It keeps me up to 2, 3 in the morning. This kind of stuff. If she dropped something, I would say, you're so klutzy. If she forgot to take care of something, I would say, are you suffering from Alzheimer's at your young age? A young brother of mine was our guest for Shabbos. He came early on Friday and left after Shabbos. During his visit, I spoke to my wife as usual with the same kind of, you know, insults. On Tuesday, he calls me up. Ever since I visited you, my dear brother, I've been disturbed by the way you speak to your wife. It could be that you do this so often that you don't even realize how awful it sounds because I was your guest and I was shocked at the way you spoke to your spouse. You have no right to speak to your wife that way. I was your guest on Shabbos and it did not feel like mixing into your life. But I kept thinking how upset we both would be if we allowed you to talk to, continue to talk to your wife this way. Please take this advice from your younger brother who loves you and cares for you. My initial reaction was to tell my brother, mind your own business, who are you to tell me what to do? But I realized that it had been difficult for him to say what he did. I told my wife that I was sorry for any pain I caused her. Since then I have almost totally eliminated all horrible remarks from my vocabulary, which now I realize were mean and hurtful. A couple who loved each other but got into frequent fights made a resolution to speak to each other with mutual respect. They needed to work out patterns of communication that were acceptable. The husband was asked, what is the motivating factor behind the way, why you decided to change? He said, I've decided I don't want to give pain to my wife and I don't want to be in pain anymore. And I decided the old way of behaving had to stop. Okay. Next, watch the content of what you say. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
This applies more than anything to our marriages. An article for a newspaper or a magazine that you write, will be very, you'll be very careful with the words that you choose if you were the journalist and writing a newspaper article. You might even ask others for suggestions. So your words to your husband or wife can create feelings of joy, love, closeness, gratitude, or maybe even re- bliss. Your words to your spouse can console, they can comfort, they can inspire them, they can motivate them, they can elevate them. But other words can create feelings of pain, distress, and anger. I had a Shalom Bayit uh, session today with someone. I told them that, I mean, that we have a concept in Jewish philosophy, the Mashpia Mikabel concept, that the man has to be the Mashpia and the woman needs to become, needs to be the Mikabel. The Mashpia is the giver of warmth, of attention, of love, of affection, of money, of everything. And it's important to give the affection. And that a woman, even if she's the CEO of the biggest company in America, Coca-Cola, and everyone's bowing down to her, but if she doesn't get a compliment from her husband, she feels like two cents. She doesn't care about the compliments from the secretaries and the general sales managers and all that. Good and fine. It doesn't equate to the compliment that she gets from her husband. Because her genes were designed to receive that chashivut from her husband. It's critical. So that I want to point out to the men. I once saw a sign on a refrigerator, be careful of the words you say, keep them soft and sweet. You'll never know from day to day which ones you'll have to eat. So be careful. The thought went through my mind that our refrigerator is the perfect place to keep this reminder. Just as we need to be careful about what we eat regarding both kashrut and health, so too, we need to be careful about how we speak. Everything you say can be said in many different ways. Choose good ways to say something. Marriage is a great opportunity to learn how to become refined. When you say what you want to say in a way that's sensitive, Instead of saying, that's ridiculous, say, I see some difficulties with that way. Instead of saying, that's so stupid, you could say something like, let's look at it in a different way. Instead of saying, how can anyone with their right mind say that, start, try saying, I think that another position has merit. Instead of saying, you're totally wrong, compare it with, this seems to be, this seems to be, to me to be the right way. So never tell someone they're wrong, by the way. It really is a very offensive thing. Because anybody who's told they're wrong is already goes on the defensive. Instead of saying, only an idiot would say that, compare it with, I think that if we both took a closer look at this, we might agree that we could look at it differently. It's all the power of the tongue. 99% of the divorces that I see is because of the way they talk to each other. With an idea just to, to kill and be killed, to trash each other. Or instead of saying, you're dumb for not knowing that. How stupid could you be? Compare this with, if you yourself know something, you don't know, say, I think we could look at it in a more better way. And if your husband or wife doesn't understand something that you said, it would be nice to say, I must not have explained myself clearly. Let me explain what I mean. Patience. Patience. Ladies and gentlemen. Sablanut is key. Do everything you can not to embarrass your spouse or put him or her on the spot in public. 
It's horrible. There's no need to point out that every single error and mistake, every time someone makes a mistake or their spouse makes a mistake, must you go and tell them? Must you publicize it to everyone about the mistake that they made? Here's some don'ts when it comes to dealing with our spouses, with a husband and wife. Don't criticize small mistakes unless you know that your husband and wife will appreciate it. Forget about it. Let it go. Some partners constantly correct the other person's grammar. You said it, you didn't say it right. Don't say, I, I, you know, I, I don't or I doesn't or whatever it is. Why just leave her alone or leave him alone? Why do you have to make such a big deal? They're constantly correcting their partner's speech. If you find someone's grammar annoying, correct it in a way that enables the other person to feel good. Don't do it in a way that makes them feel lacking in intelligence. Sometimes it annoys you. You can correct it, but it's... Right. It's the way you ask. Maybe I'll teach you. Tell her. Maybe I could teach you how to say it the right way because I don't want you to be embarrassed when it's in front of other people. Everything can be said and expressed in a soft, gentle fashion. Don't mumble comments under your breath that you know should not, you shouldn't say. Don't say, I'm not your father or mother. Of course you aren't. Nobody ever thought that you were. So, don't make your wife or husband feel low. A retired American rabbi was living in Yerushalayim. Okay, not far from most of his married children and grandchildren. He was asked about the first thought that comes to mind when he gives out advice on marriage. And he answered, this is a gadol, an American rabbi, was a gadol who went to finish his life in Eretz Yisrael. And he writes, and he's so smart, don't say everything that's in your mind. Learn how to keep your mouth shut. The opposite. Someone who got divorced responded to the question, right? What caused you to get divorced? You know what he said? I believe strongly in the importance of saying everything that I feel. If I don't like something, I consider it dishonest not to say what's in my mind. We would have had a great marriage except for the fact that my wife was so weak. She couldn't take hearing the truth. Because our genius had to make sure she heard everything. She kept telling me to keep my critical marks to myself. Nobody likes to be criticized. I don't, neither you or you anyone. So why do you have to be a, uh, a shakalvitaria, an expert at it? Why don't you try to give pleasure? Again, what's tonight's magic formula? Five words. Don't give pain, give pleasure. Thank you, David Amelech. Sumera v'asetov. Don't do bad, do good. It's not my formula, it's Tavia Melech, right? She kept telling me to keep my critical remarks to myself. But this guy got divorced. She's wrong. I was hoping she would become stronger from all the shots that I gave her. But she quit the marriage. She's a coward and afraid to face herself. You think he's happy the way he is now? Like my, my Rebbe Vic Miller would say, how many guys would still be married if they kept their mouth shut? Now they're enjoying life, living in a basement apartment, eating meal mart frozen meals. Is that a life? It's not a life. Tone of voice. What is the music of your voice? How you say everything is critical. You understand? That's huge. 
The Torah tells us to speak to other people in a manner that makes it pleasurable experience. When you come into the room, when you come into the room, when you come into the room and you speak to someone, leave them with a good feeling. It should be pleasurable. Your tone of voice should be calm and pleasant when you speak to people. Rabbi Eliyahu Lopian, who was one of the great minds of the 20th century, he was the mashkiah of Yeshivat Kevar Chasidim, which is in Haifa, would say, don't speak in anger or don't raise your voice. As we, to- we spoke about before, yelling accomplishes nothing. But it makes stress. You might win the, w- the battle, but you will lose the war. The way you say something will have an effect on the reaction of the listener. There are tones of voice that are enjoyable to listen to, like beautiful music. And there are tones of voice that reminds of someone like scraping on the blackboard. You could say it like it's beautiful music, and you could say it like you're just scratching the blackboard. So how you say everything is critical. You could say it in a soft, gentle way, or you could say it in an angry tone of voice. Your tone of voice reflects your feelings and your emotions. Frustration, irritation, anger, and disappointment can all be detected in the tone of your voice. Some people are more sensitive to this. So be careful. Disagree without sounding like you're attacking or blaming. Be reasonable without sounding like you're a robot. So you can disagree with someone, but you don't have to attack and slam them. You can talk, you can agree to disagree, it's fine. We're all different human beings. We all have different makeup. We're all never going to agree on everything. But we have to learn to speak B'derech Eretz. Some husbands and wives begin their request for help in an angry fashion. For example, a husband might say, What's the matter with you? Why didn't you sew my shirt that I left on the sewing machine? Or a wife may say in an angry tone of voice, Can't you take the plates off the table to help us out? What happens when you talk this way? Number one, three things happen. Number one, first, both notice that their spouse didn't do something to help them. Then they say to themselves, She should have known that she should do it herself, or he should do it himself. Right? Then they both express their angry feelings, and now we have a war. But what happens when you're in business? Would you ever talk to your customers this way? Khalila. If you talk to them this way, you'd be bankrupt. Right? If someone has a business and wants to keep their customers, right? Speaking pleasantly is absolute necessity, or they'll walk away. They don't have to use you as the doctor, as the carpenter, as the store, as the provider. Failure in business to speak respectfully will make you lose all your customers. When customers enjoy the way you speak to them, they come back to the business again and again. You know how many people will not go shop at certain places because they can't handle the cash register people at some place. They're they're mean. They make snide remarks. They never smile. Versus some stores, even if the price is a little bit more expensive. But it's a pleasure to walk in there. They enjoy the, the, the experience because the people act, act friendly to them. I told this story this week. I spoke to Baran Harabar, a huge crowd in Manhattan, all people that were dating to get married. And we're talking about first impressions are critical. On your first date, you got to dress the part. You got to look very, very put together because you don't get a second chance to make a great first impression. So there was a rabbi who does kiruv work, and he went to go get a nice check from uh, uh, one of the um, big givir on Wall Street. 
who donates a lot of money. So he goes to, up to the guy's office, he's waiting to be seen, and his secretary is constantly going back and forth. Can I get you coffee? Can I get you tea? Can I take your coat? Is it hot here? Is it cold here? He was amazed. When he got in to see him, he said to him, that's like the best secretary I ever saw. So the owner of the business says, she's not a secretary. She's a DFI, designated first encounter. That the first impression you should have with us should be excellent. Understand? She's a specialist that when the first time she sees you, she has to treat you like gold because your first impression with us is critical. Designated first impression, DFI. So that's how we have to feel. That's how we have to behave. Be aware of the effects of your tone of voice on your husband or wife. Right. Here's a case. I hate to be spoken to in a tone of voice that sounds controlling or demanding. If my spouse ever asked me to do something in a tone of voice I did not like, I used to respond with, if I, I'll only do what you ask if you ask again in a pleasant tone of voice. The response was, what are you, a baby? If it's the right thing to do, you should do it anyway. It doesn't make a difference how I speak to you, which is 100% wrong. 100% wrong. You're not going to get people to do anything for you if you speak to them disparagingly or disrespectfully. The tone of voice means a great deal to people. My spouse would never repeat the request in a more pleasant way. Instead, I got a speech about how I was immature for not being able to handle it. And eventually, we went to therapy and he was able to fix the problem. Here's another case. My husband and I get along very well. And our biggest nachas in life is our children and our grandchildren. My husband tends to blame me for every mistake that happens, the woman writes. But I've become used to that over the years, and it doesn't bother me anymore. For example, if I don't understand something he says, he tells me, what's the matter with you? Why don't you understand? But if he doesn't understand something that I say, he tells me, you didn't explain yourself clearly. So she's always the one wrong, and he's always right. He's like Mr. Perfect. Next, your facial expression and your, the look in your eyes can speak louder than words. We can communicate in many ways. We communicate with our words, with our body language. When I teach people how to date effectively, I tell them there's something called micro-skills. Micro-skills are the way we communicate non-verbally, without words. How we sit, this means anger, confrontation. You never sit like this on a date. You sit relaxed. You look directly at the person you're going to. Always have great eye-to-eye contact, right? You, you look relaxed. You have to be very calm. Micro skills and, and smile all the time. These, this is responsible for 70% of the success of the date, sometimes. We communicate with our words, with our body language, with the expression of our face, and the look in our eyes. There are expressions that give the message, I like you a lot. And there are messages that give the, there are expressions that say, I want to go home already. I'm not enjoying your company. It all comes down to your face. Case. When my husband didn't like something I did, he would show how angry he was by staring at me. I couldn't handle the way he stared at me, but I got so used to it that I didn't say anything. One Shabbos, when we had guests for the meal, the topic discussed was anger. One of the guests asked my husband if he gets angry. I was certain that my husband was going to reply that he doesn't get angry. 
Because I know that he does get angry. To my surprise, my husband was totally truthful. He said, unfortunately to the guest, I have a bad temper that I need to keep under control. So he admitted to the guest. As a child, I used to shout a lot at my younger brothers and sisters. As I got older, I learned to control my temper, but inside, I felt frustrated and critical. I realized that before I got married, I would need greater mastery over my anger. I worked on developing an attitude that would decrease my inner feelings of anger. I keep on practicing all kinds of techniques that increase my patience and tolerance. I feel guilty that I lose my anger and I'm impatient. I'll tell you, by the way, how I cured anger. I didn't cure it completely with me, but I had read a lot on the subject. That one thing that I found that cured anger for me was I read the Garden of Imuna 15 times. And I, I finally instilled the message inside me that Hashem is responsible for every event. You didn't hurt me, and you didn't take my parking spot, and she didn't steal my money. Everyone here, or everyone in my life, is a shliach bore olam. It's not me, and it's not them. Most of us think that when something happens to us, it's because he did this to me, she said that to me, they did that to me, they, 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 and they. And that as long as you continue thinking along that line, you're going to be a person who's angry. Because you're thinking that they have the Baal of this world. They're not. We're nothing. We're zero. It's God. He does everything. And He told he told her that she should shout at me. And He told you you should take my parking spot. And He told you to say, to say some mean words to me. Whatever. And Imunah means, So when it happens, and you're not happy about it, thank you Hashem. It's for the best. That usually just eliminates the deen. Right there. For me, in my life, that's what cured it. I mean, I'm not done. There's always what to do. But Imunah for me was the way to deal with anger. Because an angry person is angry. Why is he angry? Because he's not happy with the way life's going. As if to say he's in control. God, I don't like the way you're running my life. I don't like the way this happened. I like the way I lost money. Imunah means God's running my life. Who am I to be angry at anything? If everything that God does is for the best, why are you angry? Anger is a lack, a basic lack of imunah. I know it sounds simple, and it's not easy to get there, but like I said tonight, with work, and reviewing, whether it's the God of imunah, or living imunah by David Asher, whatever it is, if you work the imunah program, you'll work the anger management. Okay. So the wife says... I was shocked. I didn't know that my husband was working on his temper. I only observed the look in his eyes, which I interpreted that he was impatient. Now I realize and I'm so happy that he's been working on himself. Now, another thing. Ask yourself, what should I stop saying or doing that is causing my husband to always get upset or my wife to get upset? You know, we have habits. We we have things that we say that really hit their nerve. Determine what it is that you're doing that's causing that you should be constantly having a struggle over that same thing again and again and again and again. And stop it. Right? Work on eliminating some of those bad habits. Watch this. One hot summer night in Tel Aviv in a gorgeous hotel before our beat, Rav V. Finkel Allah Shalom, who was the head of the biggest yeshiva in the world, the Mir Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael in Yerushalayim, has 8,000 people studying Torah. 
was giving a lecture in a beautiful hotel to some of his former students who are now living in Tel Aviv. Before he finished, his wife interrupted him. They have wives. She said to him, honey, they have wives. He's in the middle and, and the lecture is dragging out a little bit. In the middle of a very inspiring speech, he stopped, he closed the book, and he prayed, it's time to pray. But the people said, no rabbi, it's okay, our wives don't mind, please continue. Because there was only men in the audience. First of all, the rabbi said, I'm not certain that's right, that's so, I think the wives do mind. And you have no right to make your wife wait for you. Secondly, my wife is hungry and I have no permission to make her wait. The rabbi refused to finish the lecture. And right after they davened Ma'ariv Arbit, he made everyone leave the room immediately to go home. This is a bad one, but we see this a lot. Terrible thing to do. My husband likes to make comparisons. When he was single, he did this, and he continues to do this married. This cholent is great, he tells his wife. But my cousin's cholent, when he got married, was even better. The worst thing you can do is kill a woman, is to talk to her that way. You never tell her her mother's cooking is better. You don't tell her her daughter's cooking is better. You never do that to a woman, ever. You look wonderful, almost as good as you did in that other outfit. I had an enjoyable time during this morning's conversation. The last time that it was more enjoyable was three months ago. Can never be happy. Has to have a shtech, right? Our son brought home a great report card, but his younger brother had a better one. You want to destroy a family? This is the way to do it. No matter what I do, I feel always judged by my husband. My husband has a fantastic memory. His ability to remember facts and make comparisons makes him financially successful because he does trades on Wall Street. His constant measuring and judging makes a lot of people uncomfortable around him. He isn't mean, he's not cruel, but his awesome memory gets him in trouble all the time. He's constantly comparing. And the worst thing you can do in life is compare anybody to anybody else. Everyone is created by Tzalem Elohim. Everyone deserves to be treated for who they are. I try to tell my husband all the time, but he argues, I don't do it on purpose. My mind automatically compares anything I see to something before. I do this to myself all the time. After I daven, I compare today's Shmon Esra with yesterday's. But I told him, I don't like it, because it's causing me a lot of stress. Right? So he said to me, do I, does it cause you stress some of the time or all the time? And I told him, I don't care for it. Just stop doing it. But I can't stop, he said. My brain just happens to work that way. At least your comparisons to yourself, when it comes to me and anything I do, I requested. Then you can compare each time whether it's more difficult or less difficult than other times, I suggested. You got to learn control, to control yourself. He went to therapy, he worked on himself, and he stopped this bad behavior. Next. Getting even doesn't make you feel better. It makes you a low person. Nekama. Revenge. There's a strong human desire to get even when someone does something wrong to us. If someone refuses to give us money or give us something or lend us something, we tend to want to refuse that person when they want, when they want something from me. 
You didn't give it to me? <laughs> Sorry, you're not getting anything in return. If someone causes us pain, we want that person to suffer. We want that person not to be successful. We want that person, not to do good in business. Because you cause me pain. But the Torah tells us very clearly, you're not allowed to take revenge and hold a grudge. What is the pattern of getting even? You spoke to me in a way that I didn't like, so I'll speak to you in a way that you don't like. Right? You didn't do what I asked you to do, so I'm not going to do what you want. You caused me unhappiness, I'm going to cause you misery. While the wording that is used is, is getting even, we don't get even, we go low. We become worse people from the Kama, not better. Because this is an anti-Torah behavior. You become elevated when you go above your embarrassment and your shame. Right? That's bigger. I'm not the type of person who will try to take revenge by actively doing things to make my spouse suffer. But if my spouse insults me, I act aggressive. I will act as if I did not hear requests that were made. So if they ask me to do something, I'm like deaf because I got insulted. I will find things to do outside the house instead of taking care of something inside the house because I got insulted. All the come out. Because when I'm hurt, I have a strong need to cause pain in return. This outweighs all of my ideals and my desire to do chesed. One day I was speaking to a close friend who was able to maintain a happy attitude in spite of living a life with many difficulties. This friend was having an especially hard time with one of her kids. But she was always happy. My friend said to me, years ago these types of incidents used to get me angry. And I would become embroiled if I got into a fight with my cousin. Right? But now... I'm aware that all that happens to me is not really from my relative, but it's Hashem who's testing me. I realize that all that Hashem causes to happen to me in my life is for my good. This has totally removed my negative feelings towards my cousin. Because now I know it's not my cousin, it's Hashem using my cousin to test me. This is exactly the message that I needed to hear about dealing with my husband. While I don't find it easy, I realize that he's Hashem's agent to test me for my benefit. Since then, whenever I felt like acting aggressively with him, I would repeat to myself, he's not causing me pain, it's Hashem doing this for my benefit. Listen to this terrible story, but true. I once met a rich guy who traveled far to learn about how to become happy. He owned 10 factories and had thousands of employees. His wealth was enough to last him several lifetimes, even if he would buy every luxury he would wish for. But he had no joy in life. So he rabbi, he said, teach me the formula for happiness. So I told him, I'll tell you some Torah principles that if you apply them, will enable you to find happiness in your life. But first I asked him, can you give me a picture of your present emotional situation? What gives you joy right now? Rabbi, I love to make business deals, and I hate to lose in a business negotiation. Will the amount you win or lose make a difference in your life? Of course not. I have enough money to buy whatever I need, even if I don't make another penny for the rest of my life. 
That's how much money I have. I could lose millions of dollars and I can keep my lifestyle. So what's the biggest issue that prevents you from being happy? You have all the money in the world. You could buy cars, you could buy houses, you could travel back and forth. Listen to this. A sick mind. Rabbi, it's my wife. I want a divorce. She's trying to take a big part of my money. My main goal is to make her life miserable. Huh? I'll fight her in court as long as it takes to, for me to win. People will destroy themselves for their gava. I asked him, you really enjoy this? Not really, he said. But it's my number one priority to make certain that she loses more than I lose. That's crazy, I told him. You say you want happiness, but your focus is on being spiteful, and you're harming yourself as much as you're harming her. You're both losing. His determination enabled him to amass a fortune. But his resentment and desire for revenge destroyed his life. His money went garnished. Nothing. All he lived for was spite, revenge, to destroy her. And in the end, he probably loses money too. Yes, we don't have this man's money. But we have much more than his money. We have life. And we know how to live life. And we have values that we learned tonight. That if we can use our tongues properly, we can change our lives. We can change them for the better. It's a matter of practice and technique. To anyone, again, out there who needs me, just Google me. I'd be happy to help anyone out there from anywhere in the world with dating and Shalom Bayit. Go ahead. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.